I mean, when I think about it like this, you know, it's like harmony. There's only 12 notes before they start repeating. With rhythm, I mean, it exists in time. And when you improvise, the rhythm becomes a much more present aspect of improvising. And it's honestly, I would argue, a more important aspect of improvisation than, than harmony. You, you have so much more freedom to really be you in your rhythm. I mean, the possibility for variation is endless. Greetings, everyone. This is your host, Keith Billick, welcoming you to another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. It is November now, and even though the weather is getting cold, I hope to welcome you in to the, to the warm embrace of the banjo. Just kick back and relax and let yourself be comforted by its twangy resonance. Okay, before I start creeping any of you out, I'll, uh, I'll get to the chase. Uh, first of all, disclaimer, I apologize about my voice. I came down with a cold last week, and I was hoping I would be able to kick it or kick the symptoms before I had to record this, but alas, you know how these things are. They just keep keep a hold on your on your voice and so I'm I'm sounding a little scratchy, but hopefully you can you can overlook that at least for the first couple minutes here. Before we get started, as always, I have to recognize the official Patreon supporter of today's podcast. Today we have Tom Johns, and Tom heard about this podcast through listening to Ned Lubaracki hosting the Bluegrass Junction show on Sirius XM, and apparently after hearing my name on that show, he thought about it for a while and realized that I guess I've sold him a few banjos back in my day at Elderly, and, and to which I responded that chances are if you were in the store buying a banjo sometime in between 2001 and 2010, I probably had something to do with your banjo purchase. So, Tom, thank you so much for your support, and this also just goes to show that spreading the word really helps. So, huge thanks to Tom for being a supporter, and obviously huge thanks to Ned for mentioning the show on Bluegrass Junction. Otherwise, Tom would never have discovered the show, perhaps, and wouldn't have been able to enjoy a lot of these interviews, and I'd be down a Patreon supporter. So it's helping everyone to, to spread the word about these things. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, please go to the site patreon.com slash banjo podcast, and that tells you how you can support the show. And I guess right now might be a good time to mention that I am looking to increase the types of rewards that I give to you Patreon supporters. So uh, I'm not quite ready to announce that yet. There might be a bonus episode coming out later this week that explains a little more about that. But uh, just stay tuned. So uh, not only will your Patreon contributions help help the show keep going, but there will be extra incentives for a lot of you to do that as well. So once again, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. If you'd like to contact me for any reasons offering suggestions, concerns, questions about the show or about anything banjo related, get a hold of me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Reach out and say hi. Today's guest is a banjoist named Matthew Davis, and Matthew can be seen with a couple different bands going right now. He has a group called Westbound Situation. They describe themselves as chamber grass. The instrumentation is banjo cello, 
uh, violin and upright bass, and they do mostly instrumental stuff, kind of in the vein of, if anyone's familiar with, like the Uncommon Ritual recordings or Goat Rodeo sessions, that sort of progressive instrumental chamber music uh, with bluegrass instruments. They do that kind of stuff. He's also in a band called Circus Number no. 9, which is a bit more toward your straight-ahead, modern type of bluegrass acoustic group. Circus Number no. 9 has recordings out. Westbound Situation, I actually was able to attend their CD release show a couple nights ago, and they do a fantastic job. I haven't actually gotten the hard copy of the CD yet, but uh, I'm sure it's going to be great, and I encourage you all to listen to that. He also just released his own solo record called Outlander. So he's a busy guy, and if you if you look him up on the web, you'll also see that there's videos of him performing with Bela Fleck and jamming with Noam Pakelny and, and all sorts of other people. So the fact that he is just entering his freshman year of college really speaks to the potential that um, someone like Matthew Davis has. So as much as I try to avoid saying things like, he's so good for somebody so young, the fact is that he's really good for anyone at any age. And the fact that he's young just goes to making me feel really excited to to see what he comes up with over the next many years of his career. He's going to be one of the people really raising the bar for banjo playing in the next, in the coming years. And actually, I'll go, I'll go on a sidebar here. Have any of you ever seen the movie called Crossroads? And it features Ralph Macchio. Yes, that Ralph Macchio, the karate kid. And he is a young classical guitar student, but he is fascinated with the blues and specifically the, the Crossroads story made famous by Robert Johnson, where you sell your soul to the devil to achieve musical talent. And so Ralph Macchio's character goes down to the crossroads and he meets Willie Brown. And long story short, Willie Brown is a harmonica player, um, a blues harmonica player, and wants his soul back from the devil. And the devil says, okay, you can have your soul back, but you need to defeat my guitar player in a guitar playing contest. And the devil's guitar player is Steve Vai. And if you don't know who Steve Vai is, he's one of these really outlandish shred rock guitar virtuoso guys. And so Willie Brown, he says, but I don't play guitar. And the devil says, but that kid does. And so Ralph Macchio has to play a guitar duel against Steve Vai to try to reclaim Willie Brown's soul from the devil. And I guess the reason I'm talking about this is because with a young phenom like Matthew Davis, I feel like if I ever had to try to get my soul back from the devil and I had to choose my banjo player to go into a banjo playing contest to defeat the devil's banjo player, I might choose Matthew Davis to go to go into that duel for me. So that just shows how much confidence I have in his playing. This is uh, epic proportions here that we're talking about. I should also mention, in case you didn't notice, uh, this is part one of two. Another cool thing about Matt is that he loves talking banjo, and he would have kept going for hours if I... I, I almost felt like I had to to stop him, as, as odd as that is. So there, there's just tons of good information. The first episode has a lot of information about him 
Near the end, we start getting into more musical examples, and he's got a lot of really great insight and advice for people in terms of practicing and the way to approach music. So part two will be coming up soon, but this is only part one of two, so there will be plenty more to come from even after this episode. But here it is, my conversation with the banjo player for Westbound Situation and Circus Number no. 9, also known as the banjo player who's going to reclaim my soul from the devil, Matthew Davis. and I discovered the banjo. Well, okay, so this is sort of funny. Um, if anyone's ever seen that, that kid's movie, Hoodwinked, there's a, there's a goat playing the banjo in one of the scenes. <laughs> um, and I think that was my first real exposure to it. To be prepared. This lesson must be shared. This lesson must be shared. To be prepared. To be prepared. To be prepared. And unless you got a spare... That's hilarious. Um, I kind of lodged that in the back of my mind for a few years, but... um, So do you have any idea if it was a real banjo versus one of those, like usually in cartoons, it'll just be like a a a Casio keyboard version of the banjo? I think it was a real banjo. You know, I have... I haven't seen that movie since I was like, you know, eight years old, so I need to go... (laughs) Don't let me ruin your childhood for you. No, no, it's it's okay, it's... I found the banjo. Anyway, it worked out. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, my my grandpa had given my family, like my brothers and I, uh, a tenor banjo, and yeah, one day I sort of dug that out of the closet to try to make bluegrass Some noises, noise. and uh, it took took about a month to realize I needed a five string. So, it, was somebody in your family actually playing it, or it was just no, just it was, around? It was just around. My two older brothers played guitar. Okay. And so, yeah, my grandpa. It was actually, it was a gift to him, and then he, because he plays guitar, and then he didn't want it, and so he gave it to my brothers, and they play guitar, and they didn't want it, and I didn't play guitar, but I, I wanted the You banjo. wanted it, and even I after... wanted banjo. But, but several weeks later, you actually realized that you didn't actually yeah. want it anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd already been playing music for quite some time at that point, because I started... Yeah, how old, how old were you when all this is happening, when you're finding the tenor banjo and so seeing I think I was 12, 12 okay. years old. Um, and uh, I'd been playing piano since I was like six. All right. um, and at this point, my brothers and I, we'd already like been playing gigs and stuff and like had a band of our own. With you playing piano and mm-hmm. them on guitar? Yeah. What oh, kind of music were you doing? We did, we did sort of like, like classic rock covers, basically. Okay. Like we did like Southern rock and... The good old stuff. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> well, we're in a room with a piano. I'm going to have to. Uh, you know, I, I noticed it's locked, and I was a little sad about that. Yeah, because yeah. Oh, is I, it? Yeah, I, I still do play piano, but banjo has sort of taken over. So as it which should. Which is yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So how did you actually get a five string in your hands? You you were interested so, enough that. Well, so um, I was working some with with this other band. The other band in the town I grew up in. Um, there's only like a thousand people. Other there. than the Davis kids. Other, yeah. yeah. And um, the the guitar player in that band had a banjo, and he, yeah, he just let me borrow it. It was it was like one of those like Montgomery Ward like sort of cheapo right, five right. strings, um, but it did the trick for sure. Yeah. 
did you get into any music then? Because obviously the the goat from Hoodwinked was probably not your main influence when you're okay. So I I instantly gravitated towards Earl Scruggs. Okay, good. As as you do, yeah. Um, Who's the actual goat? May may I add, right? Or the proverbial, right? You know what I mean. Yes, metaphorical goat. Yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I started listening to Earl Scruggs, yeah, Flat Scruggs, and some Don Reno stuff, and Ralph Stanley, and was very just into like early bluegrass and you just um, taught yourself uh yeah with well with the help of of our friend youtube um, yes yes yeah at our that, at that point youtube was still a pretty new thing to me but definitely a big resource enough that there were some some videos that helped you out yeah i think when did, when did youtube start like 2006 my parents didn't like let us use like youtube okay. when, like, when i was like six years old but i think by that time i had access to some privileges videos all right cool um so what was learning like did like did playing piano it must have helped you quite a bit at least with the the theory knowledge Um, and whatnot yeah like yeah musically having the piano background definitely helped and also like in terms of like i guess the motor skills in the hands and everything for the right hand i don't something about like piano right hand and banjo right hand is not that different Right. Um, yeah. And so that definitely helped sort of have general facility with my right hand. At least some um, finger independence. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That sort of thing. The left hand was harder for me early on mm-hmm. than, than the right hand was. So how long was it before you started doing just achieving more and starting to play contests and, um, and all this business? It was, let's see, let's see, I'm trying to remember the first contest I actually played or like, gig or, or anything like that. I yeah. think it took about two years before I started getting outside of just, you know, playing, um, like straight ahead, just like Earl covers, you know? Okay. Um, not that I like had those down or anything, <laughs> but that was what your, your um, focus was. Yeah. Yeah. And then I started getting into like Alan Mundy, and, like, Eddie Adcock and, uh, Tony Trishka and yeah. Just all the slightly crazier guys. Yeah. Basically. And yeah, so you didn't really feel like limiting yourself to to Scruggs. You were more drawn to the, or not more drawn, but you were you were equally yeah. drawn to to more experimental things. Yeah, I got interested in, I guess, like melodic sort of playing. Mm-hmm. Um, probably within like the first year, at some point, it definitely took a while for just like the the just like Scrug style bug to like wear off just a little bit. I think I still have it, but um. You, you have to, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, there's no way. You never lose that. That's great. <laughs> Do you Sorry. have anyone to play with? Yeah, so like I mentioned, my brothers played guitar. We They weren't into bluegrass bef- uh-huh. before, but they, they they got into bluegrass later. Are these um, older brothers? Yeah. Okay. Um, and one of them had, my oldest brother, he had gone, he had just gone to college uh-huh. and sort of left our, our little rock band in, you know, in pieces in, oh, in a certain sense. You broke um, up the band, man. Yeah. <laughs> Had to be done. But so, yeah, my, my second oldest brother, Nick, he, uh, we just started playing like more like bluegrass stuff. Um, like, yeah, Like great. guitar, banjo, duo. We, we, yeah, would play a lot of duo gigs like that. Is there a video of the two of you playing one of your compositions like in front of a fireplace? Oh, yeah, there is. And it looks like it might just be you on a split screen. Maybe I'm the only no, one that, who actually <laughs> fell for this, but it's it's that no, that's my brother. Okay, we're not we're not quite twins, but we look sort of similar. Yeah, and you, you look sort of similar, and I don't know. You just had 
shaggy hair or something like that. So you yeah. both kind of look, and you were wearing similar shirts. Yeah, I think yeah. at first I thought it was a split screen. But <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's funny. I was just watching it. Yeah, we're day. actually like two years apart, but uh, yeah, okay. people have definitely thought we were twins in the past. Yeah, there's just enough difference. Yeah. When did you figure out that you actually wanted to start doing contests? You you must have noticed that you were catching on pretty quickly and had developing some ideas or um yeah i think it was well i mean like big thanks to my parents you know for like taking me to festivals and Mm -hmm. being supportive and everything but yeah i think it sort of started by just going to festivals and jamming and like meeting other banjo players and there was i did sort of have a banjo mentor slash you know occasional teacher um mike metzger and he he lived about an hour away from me. He was one of the other banjo players in Nebraska. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he was, he was you know, enc- I think he had encouraged me to, to do some, some contests or, you know, we, he would re- sort of recommend, like, go to this festival, you know, in, like, Denver or something, which was, like, six hours away. And, yeah, Midwinter Bluegrass Festival, I think, was my first really, like, big festival that I went to. And your and, folks were cool with... Uh lugging you around yeah oh that's amazing yeah oh, cool. it's funny too yeah my like my dad he wasn't ever really into bluegrass or anything but yeah mm-hmm. he is now he's like now he like listens to mostly bluegrass it's kind of funny all because of you i Both, think uh, I guess nick so. and yeah. the old man that's cool yeah so so how did you go about i mean did you have any idea how to put together because those contest arrangements that people do are like really nuts. They practice them for a year. And I mean, you know how the, yeah. how people get with that stuff. Did you go through that same kind of process? Sort of. Well, so let's see. I think the first time I went to Winfield, I'd been playing for a little over a year. Mm-hmm. And I remembered seeing the banjo contest and thinking like, whoa, these guys are crazy. You uh-huh. know? And um, I was, yeah, really inspired, you know, by everyone's playing, of course. And it was just really cool. Yeah, I think I think in that moment I was thinking like, oh, I'll ne- like never be able to, you know, play as good as. You but know, you at whatever. least had an example um, of like what people yeah, do when they do. Yeah, these I sort of contests. I sort of got a taste of what what's possible on on the banjo outside of just what I would have heard, you know, stumbled over on the internet or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as I kept practicing and everything that year, I sort of started thinking maybe I'll do try that contest. Yeah. Um, I sort of started more than making arrangements. I think I started just like choosing like what tunes I actually wanted to do. Um, and I wouldn't really make like solid arrangements as much as just, uh, like play those tunes a lot and practice like improvising over them. And then I sort of waited till like the, like a week or two in advance to like, Oh crap, I need to make arrangements for these so I don't sound bad. So you actually, so by the time you competed, you actually did have arrangements nailed down or did you still improvise quite a bit? I, well, they were sort of open-ended arrangements. Mm -hmm. I think I had like a general shape of like, you know, play the melody first and then I'm going to start my solo like this, and then it might go somewhere else. And then I think I, yeah, I sort of had ideas. like a few like arrival points throughout the, the arrangements, and, uh, but nothing like set in stone per se. And that was, let's see, what was that? 2015. Yeah, 2015. I ended up getting second place, which I was totally blown away. At which one? At uh, Winfield. At Winfield? Uh-huh. All that. And yeah, that's incredible. So that was, yeah, that was kind of just a little bit. A little bit su- surprising. It was a big confidence boost, and I yeah kept. Oh, I can imagine. Going yeah, yeah. Did you get nervous for those things? I mean, a little bit for sure. Yeah. Because um, man, I mean, I've I, never been as nervous as when I lost miserably at a contest. <laughs> it was terrible. There's but, always a little bit of that, but I mean, there's definitely the side of me that sort of realizes that contests are contests, and you, you know, you can't go in with any expectations, even. 
even if it's like clear that your you know playing is just you know like where you know if you like think you're gonna do really well you might you might not your and fate is very much out of your it's, hands yeah, totally yeah. you just kind of have to show up and do your best and and that definitely helps to ease the nerves then thinking about like the outcome. So I had at, by that point, did you have an idea that this is something that you would want to do like as a career, as a yeah. profession? So I, I've always sort of wanted to be like a career musician and like never really anything else. Um, so I think even before I started banjo, I was definitely slowly, but surely like trying to work towards that, but definitely, but you thought you would have been a piano player was, was your idea. I, well, I don't know if I had a super clear idea. I, th- I guess I assumed I would be a piano player yeah. since that's what I played. But yeah, banjo definitely just sort of shook things up. And doing well at Winfield and going to festivals and meeting more and more like higher caliber players and getting to jam with them and sort of seeing where I, f- where I fit in in like mm-hmm. the bluegrass community was definitely a big sort of like, oh, hey, I might actually be kind of good at this, you know. What was your idea of where you fit in? You just met enough people and saw enough people play that you just thought you could do it as far as that confidence thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just getting to see sort of how small the community is and how friendly it is and how many many people that I knew that, that over the years of going to festivals that I had jammed with and sort of felt this... I guess, camaraderie, sort of peerness with, I guess, yeah. even, even though I was typically younger than most people that I would, you know, become friends with from, from playing with them and stuff. Definitely. But yeah, sort of just meeting people and like, oh, hey, like they're doing this for a living. Like maybe I can do this too. Yeah. Um, You're probably still seeing those same people yeah, around def- in definitely. your travels. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the coolest part about being involved in any of this. Yeah. It's just watching people grow and seeing what they're up to and, and touching base. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's, yeah, it's been quite the journey. So what was your next step from going from, from there, the contest thinking that you wanted to, to take this banjo thing seriously to getting in real bands like the, yeah, the so, one or two that you're in so right now? So I, I was sort of struck with, with some great fortune late, later that year in 2015, my family decided to move from Nebraska to, to Nashville. Yeah, my... Completely unrelated to any musical Well, sort of. I influences. mean, I think it was definitely like a part of the, of the decision. Okay. But yeah, my older brothers wanted to go to school at um, MTSU. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad found a, a job that was really great. Yeah, so and, it worked out. Yeah. That's and, cool. And uh, I took that everything is shifting in the family, you know, opening to to switch from public schooling to homeschooling for my last two years of high school. And that freed me up. <laughs> Got some practicing time in? Yeah. Oh, nice. uh, well, practicing and also just the flexibility to like be able to go and start taking gigs and like playing with people, mm-hmm. not being tied down with like a fixed schedule. Yeah. My, my parents were still extremely supportive. Yeah. Helping, like when I needed to travel and I was, you know, too young to like go across the country by myself or something, you know, they would, um, they would, they would make sure it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Very um, cool. So what kind of stuff were you, do you, do you have a memory of like what kind of stuff you were learning or what was helping you out or was it mostly by ear? I'd say most of my playing sort of for my whole life has been by ear with, with the occasional aid of like sheet music or, or tablature, mm-hmm. like learning Bach. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't try <laughs> to learn Bach by ear just cause it, it would, it would be easier to just, 
even even though I'm really slow at reading notes, it's still easier to just read the notes than picking um, out all the harpsichord oh, notes or something oh, like, like that. Oh, like the counterpoint yeah. of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be a good exercise, though. Maybe I should. It sure would. Here. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. I I was actually I was actually learning some Bach during that time, and yeah, I was trying to get more into jazz. Yeah, I listen I listen to myself now that I go to jazz school and like am more familiar with. You know, playing jazz mm-hmm. it's funny because i listen back to myself and how i like thought thought that i was playing jazz and it sort of wasn't really quite jazz but you know you have to start somewhere right right but yeah so i was getting yeah trying to trying to just sort of expand my yeah the different sort of styles i listened to you know influence that and the different sort of styles that influenced my playing um just sort of yeah growing trying to find you know, different ways to use harmony outside of just, you know, the bluegrass sort of, you know, What would be, world. do you have like an example of that, of what you're exploring? Maybe um, a different harmony? Let's that, see. Yeah, I will. <laughs> let's see. Let me, let me try to think. It's all sort of a blur. Yeah. Um, oh, it's sort of just like, like using like, you know, like starting to get into seventh chords and like harmonizing, um, like melodies differently, you know. Okay. Like... Something like that, maybe like, you know, like a lot of chord melodies yeah. and yeah, yeah. I definitely started exploring more like chord shapes and um, yeah, just trying to find and like playing piano definitely really helped for me because I you know could sort of play things on piano and like say like oh this is a. 13 sharp 11 chord and then I knew what notes I needed you know from playing piano and then I could go to the banjo <laughs> figuring and how to make slowly <laughs> figure it out and um banjo yeah. is really tricky with that yeah you, I remember you get some funky chord shapes I remember I, I used to play oh I still do but Misty you know that jazz tune mm-hmm. on piano and I, I had this voicing for the melody that was like you know um and I think But it took me it took me a little while to try to like wrench my hands into those positions. Yeah, but it, it's it got not a, it got a lot easier. Not easy. like now it's pretty. Well, no, it's still hard. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, yeah. So I was I was sort of just like if I had to look back and just like on an average day for me during that time. Most days I would just wake up and n- neglect my schoolwork and um, be like in, you know, up in our like, you know, little music room playing piano, playing banjo and sort of trying to figure things out. And also was, you know, moving to like Tennessee, I sort of had a, a bit of a wake up call that like, oh, you know, I because I'd sort of departed from like playing a lot of traditional bluegrass mm-hmm. Um and not that I didn't like it, but I just wasn't doing a lot of that. You know, when you sort of feel like, okay, I have this down, I'm going to move on to this. Right. I definitely didn't, <laughs> definitely didn't have it down. Realize that you didn't. I was, I was definitely not, um, yeah, not steeped in, in the J.D. Crow. And... The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Deering Banjos, who want you to know that banjo teachers love good times. In a recent survey conducted by Deering, over 200 banjo teachers were asked, how likely is it that you would recommend the good time banjo to your students? An overwhelming 85% responded that they would, with the number one reason being that good times are easy to play. 
Even Good Time Ambassador and 2019 IBMA Banjo Player of the Year, Kristen Scott Benson agrees that you will not find a better banjo than this in the price range of the Deering Good Time. With the Good Time Banjos, Deering understands the importance of starting out with a banjo that will help not hinder your banjo learning experience, which is why they make sure that each and every Good Time Banjo leaves looking great, feeling great, and sounding great. For more information and to see exclusive videos from Good Time Ambassadors Kristen Scott Benson and Pete Wernick, head over to DeeringBanjos.com slash Teachers Love Good Times. What do you think that you missed out by glossing over it a little quicker? I think a lot of the dynamic and rhythmic sort of nuances yeah, that are part of like trad banjo playing, especially in like the like what traditional bluegrass is today, and like being caught up with that. And uh, yeah, I think I think a lot of it was for me like when when you start out and you learn how to play, you know, the the licks that Earl Scruggs played. Yeah, um, it can be easy to like once you get like once you get that, it can be easy to just like move on and never think about how you do that again. Huh. Um, and then sort of just being inserted into playing with a lot of like really, really like bluegrass musicians in the South, you know? Just, so, so like what's something that, and this is as much for my own education, cause now you have me all paranoid that I'm probably playing all my Scruggs well, it, <laughs> in an inferior way. I mean, so what's something not. that people uh, would have missed with that or what, what, what do you see people do that indicates that they may be I, you know, I, don't, I don't know if I could necessarily like point out anything specifically mm-hmm. I think it's largely just a feel thing okay um, like a rhythmic feel so you know when people like talk about drive and like bluegrass I think it's yeah that sort of thing just getting you know when you hear like a really like like Allison Krauss and like Union Station Ron Block it's just Ron like Block, yeah. grooving and it's so in the pocket I think I didn't really pay that much attention early on into like what I at this, at that point would consider to be like more like simple, you know, playing, even though there's like so much there that about that, that isn't simple at all. That requires so much attention to detail and like nuanced. How did you develop that after you noticed that you needed to, to work on that? Shout out to Jake Patty. It was, uh, I, so I had played, um, in a band with, um, this guitar player from Kentucky by the name of Jake Patty. Um, and, uh, he was always wanting me to like, Hey, learn this, like learn this JD Crow, like intro kickoff and something. And I just hadn't like really dove into that stuff. Yeah. Sort of getting to explore like this massive world of like trad, um, like bluegrass banjo that I hadn't really considered because I was already more interested in like jazz and different things. And then sort of getting to come back to that and realize like, Oh wow, I have so much to learn. <laughs> more, more work um, to do. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. Largely a feel thing. I Just sensing so. how the rhythm comes yeah. together. Yeah. Cause you know, I, I know a lot of people tend to think about like drive and bluegrass and I think people associate the word drive with like speed a lot of the times mm-hmm. or like if something's really driving, it's like really like going, you know, and it's fast and and something. But you know, when you like hear something that's really driving, but it's like 93 BPM or something like a Ron Block thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and how that has so much momentum and like forward motion, but it's almost sort of laid back. It's not, it's not rushing. 
at all. Like they don't, cause you know, from a more like inexperienced approach to, to like really playing like grooving, you know, bluegrass that's slower like that and in the pocket, it's so easy to speed up. And then mm-hmm. you realize like, I'm not actually like driving the band. I'm just speeding up and it's causing You're problems. dragging um, everyone along with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like getting that. Like that sort of thing. Cool. I mean, even in that, I noticed that like I wasn't like the placement of that wasn't <laughs> quite right. You know, it wasn't quite grooving as much. Um, so it's something I still work on like to this day, just like. From what I've heard, Ron Block does too. Apparently yeah. he has quite like a pre-show r- routine of exactly what you just said. The, the slow groove metronome practice where he'll just lock into it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's never a finished pursuit. Yeah, totally. Think. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is kind of cool. So I think I asked you about how you hooked up with your band and you artfully dodged the question by talking about other banjo stuff. Oh. So yeah, take us to take us to getting in, involved in your so, bands and everything. Yeah, so okay, let's see. Probably the largest the thing that that made the bands I'm in today like possible was this thing called the Acoustic Music Seminar. It's this sort of like week-long camp. Well, it's not like a camping camp, but, you know. Um, Retreat. Yeah, 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 function that Mike Marshall uh, started and he puts on every year in Savannah, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's this thing where young acoustic instrumentalists, you have to, you have to apply and they select 16 um, musicians to come and spend the week and work on original music. Like, so it's a relatively like advanced of, yeah, uh, it's, group yeah, of, it's, of it's players. Pretty, pretty advanced. Yeah. The main thing is sort of um, fostering a lot of like individual growth. You know, there's a lot of like master classes and workshops and, and you get to just be around guys like Brian Sutton all week yeah. you know, and just learn from them uh-huh. and then getting connected with other people, you know, in or, or out of the country, you know, they 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 usually have people from outside the U S coming. Yeah. To How do cool. It too. But just sort of finding people that are like-minded individuals that are like into this sort of serious new about acoustic it, yeah. music that doesn't really fit into any genre you know yeah, that's sort yeah. of sort of like you know bluegrass jazz you know based yeah the maybe. people who would be into stuff that mike marshall does and yeah. brian sutton does yeah totally yeah and just yeah meeting those people and yeah like the band i'm in right now or one of the bands i'm in right now westbound mm-hmm. situation all the members that's where we met oh interesting time. i didn't know that um, yeah cool it's kind of funny too because even jacob warren the bass player he's from ann arbor right originally which is which is where we are at the moment yeah yeah for this podcast yeah so he's like lived here all his life and grant flick the fiddle player in in this group grew up like an hour and a half south here in ohio right um they like never knew each other um until after this camp huh interesting um, that yeah. they both yeah got into yeah um, i know, I know both of those guys and have for a little while. And yeah, I didn't realize how they had, how yeah. they had met up either. And, and so this acoustic music seminar is sort of responsible for a lot of groups. I think, I think Hoscourt and Tice formed out of that too. Really? They, they might've known each other before then. Um, but I think they were some of the first, like the first year it happened. I think they were there. Wow. Like yeah. Molly, what a, Molly Tuttle. What a cool an thing. Alumni of it. Yeah. It's uh, so it's very, very much a, a big part of, I think like, today's scene of just like these sort of new acoustic groups that are popping up and doing, you know, different things. 
a lot of a lot of them sort of come from that. It's only, it's only been going like seven years, I think. Yeah. So meeting um, Jacob and Grant was that part of your decision to come to Michigan for school? Yeah. So after meeting them, I was uh, fortunate enough to get to do the acoustic music seminar two years in a row, which mm-hmm. is the limit. You can't do it anymore after that, okay. which is sad but good. Um, yeah. yeah. After meeting them. And also meeting Thomas Castle, mandolin player um, in present day Circus Number no. Nine. Right. He lived a lot closer to me in in Tennessee. He lived in um, Western Virginia, mm-hmm. and uh, we started, you know, gigging a lot. And he had, had me play on like his solo EP or something. So we started doing a lot of gigging, and that's sort of how Circus Number no. Nine formed. Cool. Um, and then around that same time, yeah, get a call from Grant Flick saying, "Hey, let's start a band." Yeah, and, nice. Um, I think he even had the name, too, back then. He's like, let's call it Westbound Situation. It was great. Um, Man's prepared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Knows who he wants. What's to call it, yeah. Yeah, he'd Excellent. already, like, written all this music, like, specifically for, like, that group of musicians. He's... Yeah. Uh, but anyway. That's so, impressive. Whoa. He... Never mind. He just... Every time anyone says the word impressive, Grant does says this, like, joke that gets super old. I just... Well, now you have to tell it. You can't, you can't. I really don't want, well, okay, I should. Yeah. Oh, okay. So the, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I just thought it was funny that while talking about Grant Flick, that that word got said. It is funny because I didn't, Um, I didn't realize it. It's not like I, (laughs) yeah, I didn't plant it there on purpose. No, he, okay. So I think this comes from like one of the like jazz teachers here and Grant just latched on. He's been saying this joke for like a year now. And, and everyone he, he is won't so tired. stop doing yeah, it. Anytime anyone says the word impressive, he says, you know who said impressive? Darth Vader. And you know what happened if Darth Vader and Ella Fitzgerald got married? Elevator. Yeah, <sighs> it's just, it just hurts. It's one of the, <laughs> you just, yeah. Yeah, my. A part of you dies inside when you hear that joke. That's why I didn't want to tell it. My my daughter's name is Ella. So yeah, this this is like a, that's like a direct attack. Sounds like it is. Yeah. Well, we've 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 <laughs> joked about it with her before. Like, what if she married Darth Vader? Then her name would be Ella Vader. Oh, so you're like familiar with like a version of this joke? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh wow. There's also Elephant. You can you can. I don't, I don't know if there's anyone with the last name of Funt, but it, you know mm. it works the same way. But I have a reason to make that joke. Grant doesn't have Grant an excuse. Has no, absolutely no reason for making that joke. <laughs> you know, it's funny. One, this is sort of getting off topic from banjo things, but we took this we took this astrobiology class last year together, and um, it's this big like classroom, you know, with like, yeah, you know, two hundred kids or something lecture hall, yeah. And the professor said the word impressive, and I just look over at Grant like because. <laughs> Like, whatever the situation, he always says it. He didn't say it that... I was so disappointed, though. But he had the smirk, right? Yeah, well, he definitely You could tell he wanted wanted to to. say it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Back to to important things. Right, right. The Um, most important thing. Yeah. So here you are at Michigan. You're taking jazz classes. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm tempted to make you try to do that rhythmic thing that you were... Oh, no, showing yeah. me before. Are could, you up for it? I could try it. I could try it. We'll see All right. Well, well, give us the give us the lead in. Okay. This is... Yeah. My guitar teacher. There's no ban- there's there's no banjo teachers at University of Michigan. So I just take lessons with um, the guitar professor Miles Okazaki, who's awesome. You should check him out. Um, he's got some cool stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, he's super big into rhythm, and yeah, some of the some of the exercises he has me work on are kind of crazy. He does this thing where he'll he'll apply basically rhythmic value to like a scale or like a major scale uh-huh. where every whole step is like a quarter note 
and every half step is like an eighth note. Yeah. So basically, the value is that, yeah, every, every half step, or like, you know, if you were to go through the chromatic scale, it would just be like 12 eighth notes. Right. And so, so it sort of works in 12, you know, you can put it over three or put it over four. And so a major scale would be... So like, yeah, the half steps are, you know... Yeah, half the, half mm-hmm. the duration. Anyway, yeah so, yeah, so he has all sorts of fun exercises where he'll cycle through the, these sort of like rhythmic modes... Um, so that would be like C major would be this rhythm and then he'll clap his hand or he'll tap his foot too. I don't know if, I don't know if the tap foot tapping will come through the mic. Yeah, it'll, it'll come through. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, uh, so this is over three and then over four and then the four becomes the new three and you just speed up the rhythm. So you can just keep going and, <laughs> until, so cool. you know, until you can't. Um, but uh, yeah, so one of the things he, he has me doing is like, so it's really tough. You have to speak the, the C major rhythm while tapping your foot to the, to the four mm-hmm. and then cycling through. And how do you speak it? Just bop, 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 like that. And then cycling through like the whole circle of fifths of all the other so imagine like you're you're always like starting like going from like C to C in terms of like the cross section of the scale. So basically, um, it takes you through the modes. as, yeah. as, as functionally well, sort, what it sort does. of yeah. It, you know, it's all they're all major scales, but like major scales as if you were always starting on C. So yeah. like so like for instance, the rhythm of G major would be you know since that that half step F to F sharp just moves. So it's like another another quarter note and then the eighth note. Right. So it'd be instead of instead of that, it'd be yeah. And so clapping through all of these while speaking the C rhythm gets really like rhythmically dissonant. I guess it's really tough. Like I can sort of do the, the a few of them, but it's it's really really an exercise for the brain. Let's see. So like it gets it gets tricky though when you have something like like the rhythm to B major or something would be like uh, yeah hold on I have to think about it it's it's kind of tough it's like uh, if here's like the beat and it's easier over three so like that that C B would be like let's see uh. Is that B? Hold on. It's crazy to think about. It's easier when you have a, like, a piano in front of you. You can see it all. Yeah, um, the, well, the first two would, would be upbeats, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, and the part that you, that you missed uh, mentioning was that if there's not a C note in the scale... Yeah, like for start, the key of B, it'd be right. a C sharp. You then you start, start on, on the, the upbeat. Yeah. yeah, so that's an extra layer of of madness. Yeah, that, that's possible. Yeah, and he can just rattle these off like it's nothing. He's it's yeah. his thing. He actually teaches a rhythm class that Jacob took last year. That was really crazy. Yeah, like doing all sorts of like triple poly pulses where you like you speak like a pulse in like like five against three against four or like uh-huh. something like that with like clapping and like speaking and, and like foot tapping yeah it really reminds me of there there have been some indian tabla players 
that have explained. I'm thinking uh, Bela used to play with this guy called uh, Sandy Berman. Oh, yeah, I've seen some of those videos. Mm -hmm. Those are really cool. And if you if you had gone to those shows, I, I got to go see one or two of them. And uh, Sandeep would take a time out, and he he'll, he'll coach the audience how to how to clap the rhythms. Nice. And it very quickly becomes way too complicated for anyone in the <laughs> audience, and it becomes like really funny that everyone's trying to to keep up with him doing the the Indian. Uh, polyrhythms but yeah oh, it, it was funny. a really cool part of the show so how do you actually is there a way that you actually use that well other than just being like more rhythmically aware mm -hmm. and like so that's that's one of the more just like cerebral exercises but yeah. some you know more some of the more applicable stuff that we've worked on and that's really really helped my my improvising um especially as a banjo player you know we're very used to like playing just 16th notes like the whole like time. So one of the things we work on is like switching between, he called it like double feel and like triple feel of so instead of like straight eighth notes, you know, triple feel would be this and then double feel. Would be. So sort of, yeah, applying that like in a solo, if I was going, um, let's see. Just being able to like fluidly just live, you know, like in the space between those two, you know, go back and forth at will. Does um, he, does he add, does he go to like a five feel after some, that? Sometimes. Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's like the next layer, but, but the two and three are like the main usable in like everything once, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Five, five, like... That sort of thing. Yeah. It's yeah, five is fun. I love five. Um, five is kind of my favorite thing um, to to improvise with, like even over a, a four. Yeah, it can rhythm. Be, it, yeah, I don't I don't like use it too often because it can just be sort of mind numbing, and <laughs> also it's really difficult. And you know, um, but it is fun to to just be able to go between that and not like get lost. You know. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know, but I imagine that'd be a really cool tool to use. <laughs> and, it, and when you get, yeah, when you sort of get used to like switching between them, the space between those becomes a little more livable. And hmm. it's not just like a, like a toggle switch of like, are we in two, three or five? But you can sort of, you know, when you hear like, like Charlie Parker, like solo over like a blues and there's so much like freedom of, of like the rhythmic feel, but then he'll always like land right on the yeah it sort of like makes that a lot easier yeah like lining things up and just keeping that pulse and not like losing feeling, it feeling that pulse but being able to just dance around it that's sort of the goal and then something else that's sort of a part of that is getting away from like the straight like always playing like 16th notes whether you're playing like triplet 16th notes or or just straight 16th notes or eighth notes or just whatever sort of getting out of the monotony of like da 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 and sort of having because that's basically just like a fast pulse it's not really a rhythm you know because it's just the same it's so symmetrical yeah you know? whereas a rhythm has like a shape yeah um, it can be like water torture if, if you're not careful <laughs> yeah. it can just be yeah. so relentless and I mean, sometimes it, it's like exactly what you you know sure 
and even you know like but even then it needs to be yeah right, accented, you, you accented and spicy yeah, right. um but for me like being so used to just like there's always i'm always playing every subdivision getting outside of that like learning how to leave space mm-hmm. um has been really really useful for me um, and that three again, or the groupings of two switching to three mm-hmm. is something that helped you with that. Yeah, well, sort of. It's it sort of went along with it, I guess. Um, of just playing instead of for a solo, if you just go like, if I was, let's see, I'm trying to think of a tune. If I was gonna solo over like Big Sandy River, and I and I wanted to go. You know, just playing like da 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 the yep. whole time, and it's sort of dependent on what the song calls for. But going something more like, <laughs> you know, like just leaving like those little spaces here yeah. and there, you know, so the the rhythm sort of has a shape to it instead of, you know, and that way when you improvise, the rhythm becomes a much more present aspect of, of the improvising. And it's honestly, I would argue a more important aspect of improvisation than, than harmony. Because when you think, I mean, when I think about it like this, you know, it's like harmony, there's only 12 notes before they start repeating Mm -hmm. with, with rhythm. I mean, it exists in time or like horizontally not vertically and i mean the possibility for variation is endless and that does it for part one of the conversation with matthew davis of westbound situation and circus number nine you heard a few sound clips in this episode and in order they were the song be prepared from sung by a goat from hoodwinked never thought i'd be saying that on this show uh next foggy mountain chimes performed by some dudes named flat and scruggs never heard of them either i don't know about you uh doc's riverboat reel recorded by alan mundy and then a clip from matthew davis's youtube video titled bach on the banjo thanks once more to tom johns who is the patreon supporter of today's podcast you can be a supporter by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Give me an email at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And that's going to do it for me. For this one, stay tuned for part two of the conversation with Matthew Davis and all the other upcoming episodes. I will see you next time. <laughs>